This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. And uh, we are continuing to keep a close eye on the situation on the province's southwest coast. The Prime Minister, who has been touring each of the provinces affected by Hurricane Fiona, expected in the region this afternoon to tour local damage and meet with frontline workers uh, and those hardest hit by the disaster. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. In the meantime, uh, this is Right to Know Week right across Canada. And today marks the 20th anniversary of Right to Know Day. First celebrated back in 2002. Well, my guest today on On Target is Provincial Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey. Hello. Hi, Linda. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks very much. And, uh, of course, we're continuing to watch that terrible situation unfolding on the southwest coast. And we'll have updates, uh, if necessary, throughout the course of the show, just to let you and our listeners know. Um, But this is Right to Know Week. So what is that exactly? What is Right to Know Week? And what does the public actually have a right to know? Well, first of all, I want to say, you know, Linda, I've been also observing, you know, what's been uh, going on on the west coast of this province. And of course, you know, uh, uh, as it was said over the on the newscast, you know, what's going on uh, down down in Florida now. I mean, the disasters that are, are uh, being faced by people who are living in our coastal areas are really devastating. And uh, and our, our government needs to be uh, very responsive. Governments, uh, of course, in jurisdictions uh, around the world need to be increasingly responsive to these kind of disasters so uh, so you know just like everybody else I'm, I'm thinking about uh, that at this time and people who are bearing the, the costs of uh, of that storm um, you know governments uh, need to increasingly be agile and responsive uh, and uh, in responding to really complex the more increasingly complex environment that we're in whether it's dealing with the ravages of, of you know climate change and natural disasters or or whether it's dealing with you know the need for transformation in our healthcare sector or uh, transformation in our energy sector or it seems that the task of government is getting increasingly uh, complex and so you know here when we talk about right to know week uh, this seems like you know pretty uh, pretty inside baseball stuff as uh, as we might say you know the pretty pretty dry kind of the rules uh, uh, of how governments work uh, not not as immediately apparent on any given day you know why should we give attention to these kind of things on any given day when really there's there's really important problems well you know my position is that uh, you know the right to know uh, your right to know the right to know of uh, of everyone in this province is fundamental is like, like the fundamental infrastructure of government our government and our public bodies work best when they uh, when they're held accountable. Right, that's why we have a democracy. And uh, your right to know is uh, is an inherent part of that democracy. And so um, and so while our our governments need to work hard every day to respond to the the needs of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. We also need to make sure that those rules are in place, uh, the infrastructure is in place, so that we have accountable governments. And that's what Right to Know Week is all about. And so how complex does that become then, the right to know and the right to know what information governments are are collecting about you and, and how do you even know or stay on top of it? 
Well, it is it is complicated, right? And um, but you know you can boil it down to some pretty basic principles, uh, and uh, and these principles are, are uh, found in our Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act of 2015, uh, which I've long championed is uh, is one of the best in the country and indeed one of the best in the world. And it had some pretty basic principles. Um, the first is that by default. You, I, anybody else has the right to access information that government and other public bodies have. So that's the first principle. The second principle is there are some limited exceptions to that, and they have to be limited exceptions, but there are some exceptions because public bodies and governments couldn't do their business if it was a total free-for-all uh, and you could have access to absolutely everything. Uh, there need to be some exceptions, but they should be limited exceptions. And then the third principle is that there needs to be some oversight about those exceptions. So if the government is going to say, you ask for information and the government says, no, I'm not going to give you that information because of this reason or that reason, then you need to have – there needs to be some independent oversight. So that's complicated in, in operation, but that's what my job is, is to provide that limited uh, oversight. If if you think that you didn't get what you want, uh, get what you you needed, uh, get what you thought that you were entitled to under the law, that's where my office comes in to help provide the independent oversight and to check and see whether or not the the public body in question uh, followed the law properly. So that's what we do pretty much every day. What are some of those limited exceptions? Uh, so, for example, uh, the government uh, and, you know, I've issued some reports uh, about this. Uh, I issue reports about this all the time, and I issued a report on this recently that got some press. Uh, people came looking for uh, the Rothschild report. You may recall this was a, a report that the government had commissioned uh, in to review uh, the um, uh, the assets that we have to see, you know, if how do you maximize the value of those assets, maybe you know, by selling some or privatizing some or doing some business differently. And they hired a, a company called Rothschild to do a report on that. And then, of course, when it uh, when that report was received and the government announced it was received, uh, applicants came looking for it and the government said, uh, no, uh, we're not going to uh, give out that report for a number of reasons. Uh, for example, uh, it will, you know, jeopardize the financial interests of the government. Uh, that's a valid exception. And there's another exception that said it, it also was a cabinet document, and cabinet documents also uh, cannot be released. And so the uh, there were a couple of different applicants who were looking uh, to see uh, if they could get those documents, and they, they came to our office and complained, and we investigated the matter. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's actually pretty complicated to make sure that it was compliant, but we have staff here who are, uh, have expertise in doing this. And they investigated it, and we looked carefully at the law, and we looked at uh, other jurisdictions, and we had to examine the documents carefully. But ultimately, in this case, we determined that, that the government was correct in, in what it said. And um, uh, and they should withhold the documents. There's other situations that come in where, uh, let's say, the the government, uh, an applicant is looking for some information, and the government will hold hold some information back, and then my analysts will work with the public body and work with the complainant, and sometimes it'll emerge. Well, yeah, there was some some of this information we could have released to you. 
uh, and then they, they'll go about doing that in the course of the investigation. A little bit more than half the time, maybe up to about two-thirds of the time, our, our complaints are resolved informally. Uh, without having to go to a formal report. Uh, sometimes all the applicant wants is to just have a, a second impartial look. They just want us to look and say, you know, the government said that this information uh, was legal advice, for example. I want you to look at it and, and see uh, if you agree. Uh, because, of course, the applicant can't see it. They've been denied access to it. But, but I should be able to see it. And, uh, and sometimes that's all they want to see is, is to have that second impartial look. Uh, and and that happens uh, pretty frequently. Uh, that we'll we'll look at the the documents, and and say you know what, yeah we we looked at them. They were right. You can trust us. You know we don't we don't you know we don't uh, let's say have a dog in this fight, right? We don't have a partisan sense. Uh, you know it's, we're not paid to agree with the government, but we have reviewed it, and we think that they were fair in what they said. And sometimes that's all people want to hear. Sometimes it gets a little more complicated, but it gets complicated, I suppose, with with a case like Rothschild, where so much public uh, funds went into uh, preparing that document. Uh, so it becomes a little bit of a hard pill to swallow when the public says, "Wait a minute, you spent our money, but we don't know what it's all about." Yeah, it sure does. You know, that was a that was a really complicated case, and that particular nuance that you say is 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 difficult, I think. And so I did try to explain that uh, in my report. Um, you know, it, I think it was particularly complicated for people because, you know, we did have the premier's economic recovery team, right? The PERT report or the green report, as some people will call it. That report was commissioned with great fanfare and, 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 uh, and the report was received and then it went out into the public domain. Or I'm sure, Linda, you, also, you know, the health accord reports, right? There were multiple reports and they were also put out in the public domain. Uh, after lots of engagement and so on. So it's, I think it's only normal for people to say, well, hold on now. If those reports can go out, then why not this report? Um, on examination, they were different kinds of reports. And this particular report was of a different nature and at a different stage in the policy process. And, and it really was not the kind of report that should go out. But I think I don't think that was that's really intuitive. And I think uh, that... Um, you know, really examining the report makes it apparent. But of course, we can't, you know, we can't have the public really examine the report because then if, if they did, it would, uh, you know, kind of let the cat out of the bag. I mean, if you, um, for, for a couple of reasons, one, it was the type of report that certainly in my review uh, did indeed meet that cabinet confidence um, uh, exception in the way that those other reports wouldn't have. Um, but of course, the public can't see that. So that's why my office is staffed and given a job to do that kind of review. Now, uh, with the Rothschild report, and this is something that I also explain, you know, the way the policy process works, the government won't be able to implement any of the policy decisions that it makes without ending up having to be more transparent with the public because the final stages or, or even a number of successive stages in this policy process are going to require uh, a more transparent type of de uh, decision-making process. For example, uh, if the government decides to uh, do, let's say, privatize something, uh, then they you know, generally will have to go through the legislature to do that. 
and that's a public process. So there will be a point, inevitably, unless the government decides not to do anything with that report at all, that they will have to go to the public. But, um, you know, I guess where I am, and that's that's on the government to figure out how to do that. My, my role in this process is to simply say this particular document uh, should not be released to the public, you know, in compliance with the law. And, and I, I feel that it did. This is Right to Know Week, and in fact, uh, today is Right to Know Day. Our guest today on On Target is Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And our guest today on On Target is Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey. This is Right to Know Week, and in fact, today is Right to Know Day. And uh, I noticed, uh, Michael, you tabled your annual report this week. It's been an eventful year, to say the least, uh, and not the least of which was the, uh, the cyber attack on the healthcare system back in October of last year. Sure, that's a, that's not a uh, an access issue. It's a privacy issue, but I do try to be both information and privacy commissioner. I do have both of those jobs. Certainly, that's the that was the the headline for uh, for last year from a privacy concern in Newfoundland and Labrador, and 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 certainly across the country uh, was the uh, perhaps the largest public sector cyber attack in, in this country. And the investigation that we're uh, doing into it is is ongoing. I certainly hope to have recommendations uh, by the end of the year. Uh, I know that uh, people here and, in fact, across the country are, are anxious to see what emerges out of that investigation. Um, but that was certainly a, a very big deal and uh, underlines uh, the uh, the importance of, uh, of really having security um, and a high level of security in our health sector and our other public sectors, as is the case, of course, across a variety of economic sectors. What about the amount of information collected within the healthcare system? And it has to be, you imagine now in the healthcare system, it has to be at, at a much higher level than other, you know, government departments or agencies or whatever the case may be. But uh, are there limitations? Well, there's increasingly, uh, healthcare is increasingly a data rich sector. It, um, uh, I think people would really be amazed if they understood exactly the complexity of the health information system um, and exactly how many different databases that there are within the health system uh, and, uh, and how well or how interconnected they are and in many instances aren't. Uh, my, I was really pleased uh, just last week to host my, um, my colleagues here from across the country. Uh, very, very honored uh, to have them have their annual meeting here in St. John's. Um, they all gathered here and, and we talked about a wide range of subjects. But one of the ones we talked about was uh, securing trust in uh, digital health care. Um, we recognize that in an increasingly data-rich environment in healthcare, that that comes with opportunities, and it also comes with um, uh, with challenges. Uh, so, on the you know on the opportunity side, uh, you know because we have emerging technologies, emerging digital technologies, more and more virtual care. We're connecting more and more information, uh, more and more personal health information, and we're, we're storing it, and we can use that information for good clinical care, for uh, good um, uh, analytics, 
that we can study it and uh, also researchers can study it and, and we can use it for innovation and come up with better healthcare solutions. And, you know, back to this access question, the, uh, you, you know, the, we can have we as patients uh, can have more access to our uh, health information. So, privacy commissioners that met and we discussed it, that we need to maximize, modernize, uh, and standardize our health information systems so that they can capitalize on those opportunities. Um, but it also comes with risk, as we are uh, um, developing these systems. We need to make sure that the systems are up to snuff when it comes to privacy and, and security to really make sure that, uh, that as we're building them, that we are holding the, the people that are holding those, that, that information are holding them in a manner that is safe and secure. Because, uh, you know, as we all too well know here in Newfoundland Labrador after the cyber attack, the risks uh, of, uh, of that information getting out there are, are quite high. Uh, so that's uh, my colleagues and I uh, published a, a joint resolution on that matter, uh, and uh, in which we talked about both of those things. Um, one one little head, sub headline there was, you know, just to give an example, is uh, in in Ontario they have what's called mandatory uh, breach reporting. So my colleague in Ontario gets notified of every single breach. In, in the health sector of personal information. Our law is a little bit different here, but in Ontario, they have a, a bit more comprehensive breach reporting. And she reported that about half of all of the, the, breach, the breaches that are reported to her are misdirected faxes. Um, the, the health sector, um, for a variety of reasons, has hung on to faxes for far longer than anyone else. Uh, and uh, and so we uh, and she, she really called. She led the charge on this on this front. Um, but we all agreed that we, you know, axing the facts would uh, be really important to start to cut down on those breaches. Here in Newfoundland, Labrador, we know that uh, the most breaches that we hear about are misdirected emails. Um, you know, I'm sure you know many of your listeners will have had the experience of sending an email, but they type in the address wrong, and it goes to someone else. Well, that happens a lot, and that's what we see here as the biggest reported source of breaches. So, uh, you know, there are modern uh, information systems in the health sector that uh, our health health organizations need to adopt to prevent the breaches of these kind of, of this kind of information because doing so will help build trust people will trust in the health system if they uh, if they trust that their information is not going to be breached and, and not going to end up in the wrong hands and so if we're going to be building a new more digital more virtual modern healthcare system it has to be one that people can trust so that's what we meant to talk about you mentioned modernizing especially within the healthcare system and the, the fax is something i think all of us have noticed at some point it's like why are you using a fax machine you still have one of those but uh what strikes me and especially since covid and this has always been the case you know you register in a hospital or at a a, a clinic and 
and uh, you're standing up at the counter and there's usually a waiting space around you and there's people everywhere and the first thing that the clerk will say to you what's your name and you give them your name and there's usually a barrier between the two of you so there's a I'm sorry you're gonna have to speak up and uh, so you're saying their your name and then you have to confirm your address your phone number your next of kin and everybody can hear it yeah so you know we did a couple of investigations on this subject uh last year one of them ended up in a report and one of one of them ended up we we closed it out without a report and it, it really highlights the difference in you know where health authorities need to draw the line uh the first um the first investigation had to do with um, the health authority in, in this instance was in that kind of setting where there was a you know a clerk behind the council uh, counter doing a registration. Uh, the, the the patient that was there was providing a certain type of information, and it was it in this instance it happened to be very sensitive health information, and the way that the the way that the system had been set up and the way that the clerk was responding. It essentially involved a breach of that person's very sensitive health information to the people that were standing in the vicinity in a way that, you know, really was not necessary. And uh, uh, and so we found, yep, you know what, that was a breach. And what what the health authority needed to do was take this reasonable steps to prevent that kind of breach. Uh, and this is where the law comes in. The law says that the, the health authority needs to take reasonable measures. But of course, we live in a reality. And in a healthcare setting, yeah, I mean, you, you talk about at a, at a registration desk, people overhear stuff. I mean, on the, on a, up on a hospital ward, you hear a lot more too. Um, but I mean, we can, there's, there's what is possible and then there is you know what is reasonable uh and we we do understand that we operate in a in a very complex reality the health sector is a complex and fluid reality so the key is are the steps being taken reasonable um the other investigation we did so we found that first investigation we found yeah that that was breach and the health store needed to step up its privacy uh game and and they we made recommendations and and they accepted them in the other instance it was a more kind of normal situation a person revealed you know kind of just the kind of standard basic information name and so on uh, and and we found that 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 was not really a material breach and you know you have to have a registration desk so so it is what is reasonable and what is not reasonable is a line that we find really needs to invest be investigated on a on a case by case basis to try to find where that line is and sometimes it shifts over time and what is reasonable tomorrow because of changes in technology or or so on um, is different than what's reasonable today so digital the advances in digital technology will make security steps more reasonable to take and provide us with an opportunity to do a lot of this stuff uh, more securely. Uh, perhaps um, there are digital solutions available whereby people won't have to say a lot of this stuff out loud, but they'll be able to input it in some other way and have it verified in a more privacy-sensitive manner. So the, the, the sector is always shifting. Uh, the key is uh, that when, you, when health authorities introduce uh, systems that they should be privacy sensitive and take that privacy by design approach. Our guest today on On Target is uh, Privacy Commissioner, if Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey. This is Right to Know Week. We'll be back right after this. 
Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Right to Know Week, and today is Right to Know Day. Our guest today on On Target is Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey, and you mentioned your um, investigation into the cyber attacks on the healthcare system last year. Where are you in that process, and and what kind of... I know you can't say what your recommendations will be, but are there any things that, that the health systems can use to, you know, get on top of things? Well, you know, I think that, uh, you know, as you say, I can't disclose much about what we're finding in our investigation, but I think, you know, we knew this going in, uh, and so I don't think it'll be a big surprise going out that uh, our healthcare systems, uh, and this is true in this province and across the country, need to, uh, are going to need to meet uh, high standards in um, uh, high standards of, of cybersecurity. And so uh, I expect that you will see a focus on standards in our recommendation. Uh, to what extent was there, you know, what are the standards in the sector? What should be the standards in the sector? Where can we go in this uh, in this regard to uh, to provide security and privacy for the people of this province? And, and like I said, I know that other, other provinces, other jurisdictions around the, the country are looking closely at uh, at the outcomes of this investigation, so so it's the, uh, the standards. I think will be a, one major focus. When it comes to those standards, are you comparing this province to other jurisdictions? Yeah, well, we'll have to on the standards basis. The kind of standards that we would talk about will be standards that are adopted nationally and and indeed globally. So that will that's an inherent. Uh, form an inherent thing that we'll do, uh, but also it's an inherent thing that all of uh, systems can do to uh, to benchmark against each other and make sure that uh, systems in each jurisdiction are, are keeping up with the emerging national and global standards. Um, you know, the uh, the criminals uh, are getting better and better and better, and so jurisdictions need to themselves be constantly learning from each other, uh, setting and, and holding themselves up to standards to, to try to stay in front of, of the criminals. What about the number of complaints you've received over the last year in terms of access to information? Consistent with previous years, uh, greater, lesser? Yeah, so I, yeah, I really wanted to talk about this because this is bring, it brings us back to the access side. So last, you know, the previous two years uh, in my, when I was writing my annual reports, it was very much, uh, you know, steady as she goes. I had written story, essentially a narrative of, uh, you know, we have a stable access, a stable and mature access to information system. I still think we have one that we can be really proud of. But the, the tagline that I was saying over and over again was, here in Newfoundland and Labrador, under ATIP of 2015, you know, we have more access to information. We get more information faster and usually for free uh, than pretty much anywhere else in the country. Uh, and uh, and we, we hold ourselves up against global standards in this regard. Last year, we started to see uh, the signs of a system that was more under strain. Um, the uh, number we started to see some indicators that were giving us trouble. So, for example, in in the first number of years uh, under our new under our law after 2015 came in, it was very rare for us to get a complaint that said that the public body uh, didn't respond at all to an access request. Uh, we call that a, a deemed refusal. So under the law, if a government 
uh, doesn't a public body doesn't respond to your access request by the statutory timeline, then they say that we call that a deem refusal. We have very few uh, deem refusal complaints uh, in the single digits every year. Um, last year, the last. Uh, fiscal year, we that number had tripled from the previous year. Um, it, it still is relatively low, the number of complaints. We're still talking about 15 rather than five. But nevertheless, it was, uh, you know, it, it was quite unusual to have so many instances where the, where the public body just did not meet its legislative obligations. Uh, so we started to get quite concerned about that. Also, the number of investigation or number of extension applications that we got was up significantly more. Uh, so a, a public, if you put in an access request to a public body and they can't get back to you within 20 business days, then they need to come up, come to us and ask for an extension. And um, uh, and we, we usually actually give them the extension because, by and large, over the years, public bodies know, you know that they only come and look to us and look for an extension if they really need it. And if they really need it, we give it to them. But that number had increased by 50%, uh, pretty much 50% year to year. And over since 2018, it's basically tripled the number of extension requests uh, that we get in. So the system, last year, and I wrote about this, and I've written about this in my own report, last year the system started to show a lot of signs of strain. Um, we know that the, there's a lot of turnover among the staff within public bodies that do this kind of work. Um, and so that's, you know, that's causing trouble. We know that there's recruitment difficulties within public bodies to get people to do this kind of work uh, that are qualified, uh, that that's increasingly hard. Uh, so we know that there's trouble in that regard. We also know that the numbers are going up. Um, they they didn't go up, actually, between uh, the, the last two fiscal years, but we do have some sense. We don't have final numbers yet, but we do have some sense that they were up pretty sharply last year. Uh, and, uh, and so so there's more, there's a problem, I'd say, on the demand side where there's more access requests. There's also problems on the supply side where governments are not, you know, they're, they're feeling their capacity to respond to these requests is diminished. Either way, the system is facing a strain. I still believe our system is the best one in the country, but but I really, you know, it right, and right to no week, uh, it's, uh, you know, I want to take this opportunity to call on uh, on public bodies, on the government, to to really value this part of our system. It's really important in making sure that we're an accountable and democratic system. It makes us a better government to have that, and and to really value it and properly resource it. And that's what Right to Week, know, uh, right to Know Week is all about. Are the access requests themselves getting more complex? I'm thinking in terms of, uh, or or not unreasonable, but you know. Uh, more extensive, if you will. Uh, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, somebody just putting out a blanket. I'm looking for emails uh, between this date and this date within the department of such and such. Uh, and that becomes just an onerous request in and of itself. It is, I don't know that we can say that there's a pattern in that regard, that the requests are getting broader. We certainly do see a lot of that, that people, an, uh, an access uh, applicant will come in and, and, and cast their net really, really broad. Um, 
what good practice is, is for the, the ATIP coordinator within a department or public body to go back and really work with uh, really work with the applicant to say, uh, I'm, uh, I want to I help narrow the request to help find out what you really are looking for uh, so that we can, narrow, we can narrow it down and make this, the search a bit more reasonable so that we can find the five pages that you're interested in rather than the 5,000. Um, and, uh, and so we really encourage that and we encourage uh, coordinators, we call this the, um, uh, you know, they, they have a duty to assist their their applicants. Uh, some applicants really don't want to do that, and some applicants I think are don't trust that the, what's happening is is that the, their ATIP coordinator is uh, is trying to help them. I think they're some some of them are a little dubious about this. Um, in our experience, uh, I can say I do want to give a shout out to those ATIP coordinators. In our experience, we work with my staff works with them a lot. I work with them a lot. We, you know, these are good. People, public servants with integrity. If an ATIP coordinator is working with you to narrow a search, I think you can be pretty much guaranteed they're not trying to snow you. They're trying to help you. But uh, I can understand sometimes why people might take that approach. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's it's a bit tough sometimes, but, but I, I would encourage people, you know, work with your ATIP coordinator. Uh, you know, I, I, for the most part, I can vouch for them. They are trying to help. I want to talk to you a little bit about duty to document as well when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey. This is Right to Know Week, and in fact, today is Right to Know Day. We'll be back right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. We're back. Our guest today on On Target is Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey. This is Right to Know Week, and uh, Michael I know in the past you've uh, spoken at length about uh, the duty to document. Do you do you find very many instances where the responsive records simply don't exist? Well, I, uh, what, what we find is, yeah, there's lots of times when applicants will say, you know, I think these, these documents should exist, um, but the public body is telling me that they don't. And there are lots of times when we agree with them. Now, there's other, there's other times when when we we say, well, you know, we don't we don't agree with you that that uh, you know I think you're you're thinking of, of documents either that that were probably uh, didn't ever exist or or maybe were destroyed. But there's yeah, there's many times in which we would um, we're surprised as well with what comes back with the you know as showing no documentation. So duty to do, you know the access law. Uh, can't really operate properly without good, uh, without a duty to document, without good information management. Um, and and I like to think about duty to document in in two di- directions. First of all, you know the requirement for public servants to um, uh, to properly and adequately, and this is what the law says in British Columbia: you know, adequately document government decisions. That's what we're really missing from Newfoundland Labrador law. Uh, is um, you know we we need that legislative requirement. It, it also, however, is important in duty to document policies to provide uh, guidance about what to document and and also sometimes what not to document. A lot of a lot of access requests uh, involve people getting back all sorts of uh, all sorts of documents that that really they don't they don't need. Um, they're responsive, yes, but but you know are kind of noise, right? So really, what what uh, people need from a good document to duty to document regime is uh, is a way 
state to provide that legislative requirement for public bodies to properly, adequately document what they want so that we can adequately hold uh, our public bodies accountable. Uh, so that's what we need in Newfoundland Labrador. It's been the the, um, the recommendation of a number of, of reports going back years, uh, going back to 2015. It was what uh, you know, former Premier, former Chief Justice Clyde Wells, and and that committee recommended. Uh, it was a recommendation of the Muskrat Falls Inquiry, um, and then the 2020 statutory review of of the ATIPA. It well, it wasn't strictly a, a recommendation of uh, of that report, but it, it you know the the chair did look back to those previous reports and say you know it's about time. Uh, Mus- the Muskrat Falls Inquiry recommended that this be done in six months, and that was you know two and a half years ago. So, you know, I'm concerned that this legislative um, uh, uh, amendment has, has not advanced. Um, I, you know, was last consulted on it quite some time ago. It, there's, it's, I hadn't heard about it for quite some time. I, I have a sense that, that it may, um, you know, recently, within the last couple of days, I have a sense it may be starting to emerge again as a priority. And if so, I'm very happy about that. Um, and uh, but it, I am generally, and this is something I wrote about in my annual report, concerned about the momentum behind access and privacy legislative reform in this province. I mean, uh, um, the ATIPA review that I mentioned a little while ago, uh, the government Department of Justice has had that now since June of 2021, uh, and uh, and we really haven't been engaged on the major policy issues so far by that by that report. Um, the FIA review, the Personal Health Information Act, uh, we talked about personal health information earlier. Uh, they, there was a statutory review done in 2016-2017. Uh, it issued a report, um, but the government didn't act on it, and then was legislatively required to launch another statutory review again, and, and it did that. Uh, on the very last day that it, it was legislatively required to, it, uh, it decided it would have another stat review. But, and that was back uh, in January. January, we heard about that, but we haven't heard anything about it since. So, you know, there's all of this legislative work that, that needs to be done, and, and it doesn't really seem to be a top priority or, or even a medium priority for the government. And, and we're concerned about that because, like I said at the outset, when, uh, you know, yes, governments need to respond to the day-to-day crises, but you also need to make sure that the apparatus of democratic government is also given priority because um, we can't just, you know, we can't respond to only the crises. You, you've got you to do both, right? You've got uh, to respond to, to what the imperative of the day is, but you also got to make sure that your, your house is in order uh, and that your, your government and public administration are operating properly. And with the quickly evolving and unfolding events uh, on any given day, you just don't know what is going to be required six months down the road. Yeah. And listen, I I understand all too well. I worked within government uh, before I was in this position. Uh, I worked in senior management and executive roles in government for for many years. You know, I know what it's like on any given day, you know, when you have a crisis, whether it's today it's a cyber attack, tomorrow it's a hurricane, uh, the day after uh, it's a human resources uh, crisis in in the health sector. I get it. I understand that this is hard, Um, but uh, uh, we have to to both uh, prioritize both kinds of things, you know, the, the institutional stuff 
and the the uh, the operational response. Michael Harvey, a pleasure as always. I really appreciate uh, your time this afternoon, and happy Right to Know Week. Thank you very much, Linda. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. Uh, and stay tuned throughout the course of the afternoon. More evolving uh, news and information coming out of the southwest coast and uh, response to Hurricane Fiona. We'll keep you up to date on all of that. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone.